Episode 290, Shining a Light on the Crafty Gambits Used by Some, Not All, Hospital Billing Departments. Today, I speak with Doug Aldean, an attorney in Austin, Texas. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's a couple of sentences ripped from the headlines recently. It is free to be tested for COVID-19 in the U.S., but the cost of treatment can be shocking. Even if you're insured, the deductible and copay can add up to several thousand dollars. And if you're uninsured, the financial toll is even uglier. That's what Boston resident Danny Aschini learned when she got a $34,927 bill after receiving treatment in a local emergency room for COVID. That's from Time Magazine. Episode 260 of this show was about the Shkreli Awards and the worst profiteering in healthcare. The judges of the Shkreli Awards bucketed the winners into a few categories. One of the categories of, you know, winners was called schizophrenic compartmentalization. And this schizophrenic behavior seemed super applicable to hospitals this past year. This schizophrenic compartmentalization happens when the person who wrote the mission statement and probably doctors and nurses are on a totally different planet than the billing department. So I wanted to, you know, take a look at a couple of mission statements just as a reference point, including the mission statements of the hospitals that won Shkreli Awards in the schizophrenic compartmentalization category. Luckily, there is a web page where hospital mission statements are all collected in one place. So I did not need to travel far to confirm that they are all very, very similar. Something along the lines of treat patients with compassion, be a productive member of the community, ease suffering, and give the highest value to all concerned. That's very noble and what I would expect a hospital, honestly, to be striving toward. Here's the thing, though. This is what the whole hospital is supposed to be doing. I didn't find one mission statement that said, you know, everybody except the finance team is subject to this mission statement. Those guys are over there. You know, they have their own. Today, I speak with Doug Aldean. Doug is an attorney. He is generally hired by self-insured employers. He has dealt with hospital finance teams for two decades. So he is the perfect person to dig into the delta between the hospital's mission statement and the finance team's mission statement. This is what we talk about today. Doug also offers up some solutions at the micro and the macro level. One vocabulary word before we get started, RBP is otherwise known as reference-based pricing. This means when a health plan, usually a self-insured employer's health plan, says that they're going to pay for health care services based on usually the Medicare rate. So they'll pay like 1.5 times or two times what Medicare pays, for example. Do I want to be a little bit sensitive right about now to some of the hospitals that are struggling under the weight of COVID and the shutdowns that have been transpiring across the country? Yeah, I do. At the same time, there is absolutely no excuse to take advantage of those that you claim to serve. There's a big delta between charging a fair price and wrenching dollar bills out of the sweaty hands of hardworking Americans just because you can. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Doug Aldean, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. Glad to be here. So today we are going to talk about hospital billing practices, are we not? Yes, we are. And that, that's, that is the issue du jour. 
So let's get to it. The hospital billing practices that we're going to be talking about are, are ones that are, let's just say, some shade of exploitive. Is that how we might describe them? Absolutely. As an example, you could have a facility which will specifically exclude out-of-network patients for accessing any type of charitable discounts. They are excluding out-of-network patients for any type of charitable discounts. What impact, obviously, does this have on patients? Enormous. So as an example, if you are a patient who has a high deductible plan, let's just say, for example, it's a $20,000 bill, you could be on the hook for easily half, if not more of that, depending on you know the coverage and everything else like that. But why would a hospital do that? There definitely is an end game strategy. And the end game strategy for all of these facilities is to preserve insurance coverage. And whether it's the provider that owns the insurance company or whether you know a majority of their revenue is derived from the Blues, the Blues United, Cygnus, Ednes, Humanus of the world. So it's really preservation of certain income streams that are much more profitable than if Stacey or Doug were paying cash. So the real point there is to scare the bejesus out of patients who are out of network and try to get them to get in network? Absolutely. I just read something the other day that said that uh, hospitals that have a monopoly in any given area, like consolidated entities, they charge 23%, I think, more than other hospitals that don't have a monopoly. So if they're able to get some, let's just say, pretty sweet rates from the BUCA plans, that is preferable than trying to shake down some postal worker for a cash pay. Absolutely. So the hope is that they go on social media and say, oh my gosh, I was out of network at XYZ Hospital. So I'm going to go get insurance and you guys should too? Exactly. Does that work? Because I would think that, you know, people don't even know what a deductible is. So I would think that the only thing that would happen would be that all the patient's friends would not go to that hospital. (laughs) Well, you know, I I would couch my answer this way. I would say two or three years ago, I think it would have a better than a 60% chance of working in today's environment where everybody is feeling the pinch in terms of rising premiums, healthcare costs, and all other things. I think it falls on deaf ears. So ultimately, what's hap- what will happen is you'll create a bunch of noise in your local marketplace. And then, you know, our legislators getting involved, local employers getting involved. So there's a grassroots movement as we speak that, that are looking at these practices saying, wait a minute. I mean, we're happy to pay you. We're happy to pay you a you know fair level of reimbursement, however that's defined. And let's just call it 200% of Medicare as an example, which I think is a very, very fair level of reimbursement. In the hospitals, that's a substantial haircut from what they're accustomed to receiving. So it's income preservation and it's putting the, the patients in the middle to see whether that's enough to steer people back to a provider-sponsored insurance plan or a book. Blues United, Cygnus, Ednes, Humanus. Okay, if we're looking at this, let's just make an exploitive practices list, Doug. And yes, ma'am. call this number one. So exploitive practice number one is that we're going to exclude out-of-network patients from financial assistance. So they go tell all their friends that, you know, everybody should insurance up, if that's a term. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's a new term we just created today. Yeah. <laughs> and as we go down this list, so we just tackled number one, but I, I think we should be clear here that we're probably not talking about all hospitals. You know, we're talking about no. some, of course. Correct. You know, so maybe let me just ask you this before we get to number two. If you were going to guesstimate the percentage of hospitals in the country with, frankly, sneaky and underhanding billing practices like we're talking about today, mm-hmm. what percentage do you think that is? Very small percentage, okay, because you're going to have, and obviously we've got a list to go down and I don't, I don't want to get everybody off track, but if you look at hospitals, and I do a fair enough, enough of this across the country, I mean, I can think of three. So if 85% of your hospitals are not for profit, I mean, I can think of three systems off the top of my head that have employed this type of practice that I personally know could show you the financial assistance policy. So it's a very, very small percentage. But if you look at the markets that they're in, you're not in Chicago, you're not in New York. I mean, you're in what we would call flyover country. Not many options, if any at all, other than that particular system. So it is a complete monopoly in every sense of the word. You couch that with not-for-profit. So if we're looking at, you know, if 85% of the hospitals are not-for-profit, you know three of them, of, and they're right. all not-for-profit that are... Correct. But obviously, what I'm taking away from what you just said, they can do a lot of damage, these three hospitals. So it doesn't, you know, you've got one rotten apple that's creating a situation where everybody looks bad. I mean, if you want to think about this, I mean, you could take, you know, and I'll take a particular system that I'm thinking of in this particular geographic swath in the country. Maybe there's 800,000 people in that service area, you know, times that by three, which, you know, you're going to be plus or minus. But I mean, you could, uh, you know, adversely affect three million people. I mean, over substantially overpaying for healthcare simply because your drive to New York or your drive to Chicago is prohibitive, if you will. Yeah. And it's probably exacerbated also by the private equity that's getting into those exact same hospital emergency rooms, I'm thinking. Well, think about this. So not only do you have what I would term a predatory health system, but then all the ancillary physicians, your anesthesiologists, your radiologists, they're out of network. So the local population is getting, you know, (laughs) the double whammy, if you will. So now you hyper paying hyperinflated charges to the health system, which has a monopoly. But for those ancillary physicians that they don't otherwise own, they're getting hit with out-of-network bills as well. I mean, so, I mean, think about this. If you're on Wall Street, there's a number of different regulatory bodies. There's FINRA, there's the SEC. In theory, there's referees out there that can look at unscrupulous practices and put a stop to it. In healthcare, there isn't anybody. There's no regulatory body that says, wait a minute, you can't do this and then puts a stop to it. There's nobody there. Let's continue with our list. So we hit number one, then we had a little (laughs) sidebar, but now let's get back to the list here, Doug. Yes, ma'am. If we were going to talk about a second exploitive hospital practice, what would you say it is? Well, the, the second one I think that comes to mind is what we'll call the scorched earth policy. And that's just, you know, a hospital system recognizing that reference based pricing has been parked in their backyard and they engage in a scorched earth policy, which is whether it's an $83 bill or an $8,300 bill, they're filing a small claims complaint. And they are going to not negotiate and they are going to sue everybody and everybody to steer them back to whether it's a Buca, Blues United, Cygnus, Ednes, Humanus, or whether it's a provider-sponsored insurance plan. And we cover this 
in depth in my interview with Marty McCary, which is episode 242. But, you know, one of the things, Doug, that is news to me is that these scorched earth policies tend to transpire in areas with employers who've done reference-based pricing. I was just kind of thinking the object of the game was to get the $400 out of the sweaty hands of a Walmart worker, a postal worker, or a, you know, actually somebody who works at the hospital, which are the top three groups getting sued by these Mm -hmm. organizations. So the object of the game isn't to protect, you know, to garnish, I think it's like 1% of their total on average annual operating income or something that's ridiculously low. So the point is not to get an additional 1%. It is to impact the employers in the area. And is that what I'm understanding? I think the long-term plan or the long-term play, if you will, is preserving the network. Think about this. I mean, would you be willing to spend $1,500 chasing somebody that may owe you, I don't know, 2000 which you're not. But at the end of the day, have you beaten them enough up to steer them back to a Buka-type environment or a provider-sponsored plan? You've basically spent money to steer them back to something that's going to pay a lot more on a contracted basis. I think what we're getting at here is something that has been discussed a lot on this podcast. But just in case you haven't listened to earlier episodes, I refer you back to the one with David Contorno, for example. Hospitals make a ton of money off of patients who have those commercial insurers. So it sounds like what I'm understanding, like I said, I've never really thought about this before, but what these hospitals are doing is preserving that revenue source by That's cur- by making it really tough for employers who choose not to have one of those buka plans, you know, basically forcing them vis-a-vis a, a hostile hospital environment to get back on the commercial insured bandwagon. Exactly. So think about this. I mean, if, if you're the if you're the local employer and you've got people waiting for you when you show up to work about, you know, balance bills, the robocalls, the letters. I mean, you're creating havoc in your workforce, which, you know, it's disruptive. People are spe- spending more time calling up the local facility trying to get little Johnny's broken finger paid for as opposed to working. I mean, it's a strategy, I think, that's got short-term benefit for the facilities. Long-term, I think, in this environment, because we're, we're going through the transition now, I think long-term, it doesn't work for these facilities. I really don't. You'd think, do you see that happening in your work? I mean, obviously, you work with employers and you negotiate with hospitals all yes. the time. That's your day job. Do you see if an employer makes an outcry on social media or in the news, you know, like when a hospital gets a news story written about them, about these scorched earth policies, which is happening, does that impact their behavior? It does, without a doubt. In fact, I'm working on one in particular right now. And, you know, just the threat, local news reporter, local newspaper reporter, all with articles and, you know, all the ready to go. It's amazing how quickly the hospitals shrink, but you have to go to that length just to get to that point. Because the last thing a hospital wants, I mean, think about this, you may be the largest employer, maybe the largest landowner in your particular town. You're tax exempt and you're suing the local population that supports your very existence. I mean, in the numbers, I mean, in some of these facilities in terms of profit margins, revenue, Everything else like that are are jaw droppers, and it's not something you really want in a public forum if you can avoid it. Vikas Sani 
from the Lown Institute said on the podcast recently, he said that sometimes in healthcare, the halo is exploited for ends which aren't necessarily honorable. That's exactly right. And there's a, there's a complete disconnect between, you know, the folks at the top of the organization and then the folks that are actually responsible for billing and collecting and, and making sure that revenue stream doesn't stop. That being said, Doug, fill us in. Is there a third exploitive practice here that we should be aware of? Yes. When a provider owns an insurance company, so a provider-sponsored insurance plan, so a pay provider, I love that term actually, but when a hospital has 100% ownership stake in its own insurance plan, you're going to see, you know, the hospital is going to take a very, very difficult approach to anything other than that particular insurance plan. Because, I mean, the, the way it's set up internally is, I mean, even the blues are not going to be able to access the, quote, the best discounts. And so you've really set yourself up in a position to own and control a marketplace, assuming everybody subscribes to your insurance plan. And so when it's not, you're going to see a significant backlash because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a significant revenue maker. So let me understand this. What you're saying is these new pay providers, I've heard them called, or pay providers, these are provider organizations who have decided to open up their own health plan. Correct. So it's everything all together. What's going on there is that the pay provider obviously has a market advantage over your regular insurance carrier because the regular insurance carrier has to negotiate with the provider and probably is going to wind up with a higher bill than if the pay provider is effectively negotiating with themselves. <laughs> exactly. So the pay provider then is going to use its market advantage to try to block all the other insurance carriers and probably can because the rates are lower. But then what they're they do is they try to grow their market. That's exactly right. And that's the environment from which I came. So I came from a provider-sponsored HMO. So I understand the, the market dynamics pretty well. But if, if you have your own health plan, you can, you know, since you control that reimbursement and you own those providers, okay, or the providers actually own you, technically, your rates are going to be substantially less than what the traditional bukas are going to be able to get. So even though, you know, the bukas could, quote, be in network, they're going to pay more than what you're going to get from your own provider-sponsored insurance plan. And then, you know, when the bukas, you know, they pay X amount of the bill or, you know, you've got a super high deductible, they're going to sue you in small claims court because all that's going to do is create aggravation in the marketplace and hopefully steer them right back towards your own your own insurance plan. I mean, you're, you're going to ultimately, the long-term goal is to own that marketplace. And you can do it through your own insurance company and then, you know, waging a ever so inconspicuous small claims battle. Okay. So the first tactic that we talked about was to get individual patients to like insurance up to get insurance either from the pay provider, from a buka commercial plan, but get insurance from somebody. This one is more focused on the pay provider specifically and has as much to do with local employers as like individuals. So if insurance is purchased from the pay provider, it's going to be less costly for the employer slash member and the pay provider, you know, obviously makes more money in that model. 
Hopefully we're not giving anybody any ideas, Doug. That's not the objective here. <laughs> <laughs> They're already, already been tried and proven. <laughs> so the idea is that the employer constantly has, you know, is, is constantly getting calls from the payvider, you know, like you owe us this amount of money and their employees are taking days off to go to small claims court. So it just becomes such a hassle that exactly. the employer is like, fine, I will use you, payvider. I mean, so think about this. I mean, you've been working all year. You've got a two-week trip to Florida, going to Disney World, going to the beach, and you end up getting sued in small claims court for $3,200. And, you know, people are not very happy because you're not going to Disney World. You're stuck paying a local hospital, which you blame your employer for not paying. And it just creates a hornet's nest. All right. So moving on to number four, let's talk about the fourth tactic for hospitals to overcharge. Actually, you know what? Before we get into this one, because I have a feeling what it's going to be, Doug, maybe we should do some glossary definitions because I have a feeling you're going to use some words that maybe not everybody is uh, familiar with. Moop. What's that? A moop is maximum out of pocket. So a moop is under the ACA. The government decided that the maximum individuals or a family would would be obligated to pay would be a certain number every calendar year. So if, if you, you know, have a reference-based pricing plan or RBP, uh, if you have a reference-based pricing plan and there's going to be a MOOP requirement implemented in that where you're, the, the maximum that an individual or a family has to pay is X amount of dollars. We have been using the reference-based pricing, you know, the RBP term earlier too, but what's reference-based base pricing. Let's just define that too. What an employer will do is it will traditionally, it will set a level of reimbursement using a percentage of Medicare as a benchmark. So as an example, you could say the most or the maximum allowable that we're going to reimburse this particular provider is 150% of Medicare. So the hospital sends a bill for whatever right. they want because they've got these charge master rates that they make up themselves. The employer's like, nope, We know what the Medicare reimbursable rate is. We're going to multiply that by 1.5 or 2 or whatever, and that's how much we're going to pay you, period. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So we've got MOOP, which is maximum out of pocket. We got RBP, which is reference-based pricing. All right. Back to regularly scheduled programming here. What's tactic number four, Doug? Okay. So then tactic number four was an attorney was actually retained by a hospital to systematically appeal each and every underpayment, I'm using that in quotation marks, by the reference-based pricing plan in California. The strategy was this, is that you're not looking to sue the patients, okay? Rather, in state court, rather you're looking to sue the insurance carrier, okay? And again, it's a self-funded plan, but sue the self-funded plan for violation of the maximum amount of, not only for the underpayments, okay, since you're out of network and they think they're entitled to, you know, whatever the charge master rate is or a percentage of it, but then also for violating the maximum amount of pocket under the ACA. Okay. So when you systematically, yeah, so when you, so ultimately what happens in the self-funded plan is, I mean, you have to appeal and you have to exhaust what's called your administrative remedies under the plan, which then gives you standing to sue under ERISA and bring in the self-funded plan. So what I'm understanding is there's a maximum out-of-pocket that's allowable. So, you know, the patient portion cannot exceed a certain amount, right? Correct. So if you think about that, and then you think about, all right, you've got the reference-based plan that's going to pay X. 
Okay. Yep. But the total of those two things, the MOOP plus what the employer pays that total, doesn't add up to the amount that the hospital wants to charge. There's a gap there. So what this attorney's scheme was or is, is to then go after the employer because they are obligated to pay the difference because the patient can't pay more than the MOOP. Correct. How's that working out? Well, for this particular facility, they were raising their charges relative to their costs 30 to 1. So... Ever, so think about this. I mean, every year you look at what they charge versus their expenses. And when you look at how rapidly their charges were increasing relative to their costs, it was a 31 ratio. So think about this. If you raise your charges at that rate, how easy is it to get to, let's just say it's the maximum amount of pocket was $6,800, okay? You could get to $6,800 literally with one CAT scan at the rate you're raising your charges. And so the long-term play is, I mean, would you raise your charges at that rate, knowing full well that they're hyperinflated and they're fictional, but you're, all you're doing is you're, you're blowing past the maxima or the MOOP just to get to the insurance carrier. Because you'll gladly, I mean, at the end of the day, if it's you got $12,000, you'll gladly waive 6,000 or 6,800 from the patient, as long as you can collect from the insurance plan. So in other words, you're, you're basically hyperinflating your charges to access the insurance money, if you will, knowing full well that you're not going to really try to collect from the patients. These hospitals who are in those middle states, maybe they're rural hospitals, and everybody knows that rural hospitals, especially in states that didn't expand Medicaid, are struggling for their very survival. I mean, is this some kind of like, you know, hospital in a death throw that's trying to do everything possible to like stay solvent? This particular facility was in California. Devil's always in the details and whether other facilities available to create an adequate network, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, where this particular facility was located, let's put it this way, they were not struggling to pay their bills. So we can rule that out. So this was basically some attorney at some hospital who was trying to make a buck. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I, it's almost like ambulance chasing. I mean, so as opposed to putting up a billboard, you set yourself up inside a facility. What's the solution here? Because these tactics, they seem like they're working, you know, like just given what's going on in the news and just, you know, talking to the number of employers that both you and I talk to, like this is running rampant strategies one, two, three and or four. You know, I think the strategy is I'm a big fan of Keith Smith and the Surgery Center of Oklahoma City. Bundle payments, transparent pricing, great doctors. But I think people, I think what needs to happen is you need to create, you know, an arbitrage in terms of the market. So you have to be willing to travel. So if you live, let's just say you live in Kearney, Nebraska, you know, and you need a knee replacement, you may have to fly to Oklahoma City. And frankly, you know, with the right advisor and the right type of plan, you can structure something like that where it's very favorable to the plan, very favorable to the patient. You just have to hop on an airplane and go to Oklahoma City. I mean, just by virtue of looking at your options in Kearney, Nebraska, not many. When you have that, that forces other facilities to the table to realize that if the local population is all going elsewhere um, other than emergency care, I think that helps drive you know, a decrease in price because that's ultimately what we're looking at. We're looking at you know, it's a price issue rather than a cost issue. 
in this country. So it sounds like one strategy is get the heck out of Dodge, <laughs> you know, just yes. basically insert competition, you know, like healthcare used to be, it still is, but it was 100% local. I mean, patients did not have a choice. Employers Correct. did not have a choice. But now air travel is an option. So, you know, pick a facility that plays fair and send your patients elsewhere. I mean, you're still going to have emergency room and you're still going to have other, let's just say, challenges. But at least for some of the high-priced planned surgeries, you can put a stake in the ground in that way. And if you look at, for example, like what Walmart recently did, they didn't suggest, they required their hundreds of thousands of, of employees. If you require, whether it's back surgery, knee surgery, there's a number of different things, but there were eight facilities across the United States that they are required to go to, nowhere else. And they're happy to fly them there. They're happy to do whatever it takes to get them to the right physician with the right quality. I mean, all the different metrics that everybody talks about, but ultimately you got to go elsewhere. Yeah. And I did interview Olivia Ross, who was with the Pacific Business Group on Health on their medical travel program, which is used by Walmart. If you're interested in learning more about that, is there anything else that an employer might be able to do? It's educating your employees and really having an honest conversation about this is what it really costs. And you're free to go to the local facility, but it's just going to cost X plus, whatever that number may be. But if you're willing to do something else, here are what other options are. Because there are, there are just places in this country, whether we like it or not, that are medical deserts. There's just not many options. Anything else? No, ma'am. I think that kind of sums it up. Well, I think a third. So I'm going to add to your list, Doug. Okay. Maybe we're brainstorming here. Is, I guess, call a reporter. You could call a reporter. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the salaciousness of this is, I mean, it, it's a feeding frenzy. And it's almost like it could be in the National Enquirer. I mean, because I mean, some of the things that these facilities are doing to people is so unbelievably awful. Uh, it just, it, it makes people's jaws drop. Have you seen employers banding together in a local market and kind of, you know, like as a united front marching into a hospital? Yes, working on something like that right now. All right, so and it, I mean, now, it now we're up to, what is it, four? We got four solutions yes, now. Exactly. But it definitely, it's an opportunity for the local employers to come together. And it's not everybody, but it, it would be, let's just say your big three, that realize what's at stake here. And again, this is not about shafting or otherwise not paying for services. It's just coming up with you know, a level of reimbursement or paying these guys or paying the physicians in the hospital a fair price. It's so simple. It's just, it, it's just taken a long time to get to this point. If there's hospital executives who are listening to the show, because there are, what would you say to them? Here's what I would say. I've actually written several of them and have never, not once received a response. There are so many employers that would love to contract with you directly would love to have an honest and transparent conversation about what is a, how do we fairly compensate you and your physicians if you own them? Because again, they're in business, you're in business, but the game of hide and seek, charge master rates, I mean, all of the different stuff because you're in network, out of network. I mean, it's just, it doesn't have much longer. And I, if I was a hospital CFO, first thing I would do is hire you know a salesperson to go direct to employers. How do we work together? What do we need to do to work together to find what's going to be mutually beneficial. 
Yeah, and considering that, I read the other day that something like 60% of even an average Buka's revenue comes from self-insured employers. So, you know, like this is, you know what they say about karma, right? Like, yes, maybe it's going to come around sooner than we think. I think that, you know, you owe it honestly. I mean, just from a personal and and moral standpoint, you're a local, not-for-profit, sometimes religious-based organization with a mission to help people. I mean, you're obligated to take an olive branch, extend it across the aisle and see what we can do to work together. I mean, I hate to sound like a Pollyanna, but I mean, it's really kind of true. Doug Aldean, where can people go if they are interested in learning more about your practice of law? Feel free to call me or email me. My email is doug at health-attorney.net. Happy to chat with anybody at any time. And I would also highly recommend following Doug Aldean on LinkedIn because he makes some pretty good posts. Thank you. Doug Aldean, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Stacy, thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.